Section two of the beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Teutonic settlements in the West, fall of the Empire in the West, four oh six to four seventy six. Part two. He passed through Germany into Gaul, sweeping along with him in his course as confederates or subjects, a mixed multitude of many races, and visiting with impartial havoc and slaughter the Roman cities and the Gothic settlements. Romans and Goths forgot their own quarrels in their panic and distress. The ablest of Roman generals, Aetius, and the most powerful of the Gothic kings, Theodoric of Toulouse, joined their forces and were only just in time to save Orléans and prevent the host of Huns from bursting the barrier of the Loire, June 23, 451. Attila retired and waited for them in the plains of Chalon, plains made by nature and used in our own days for the encampment of great armies. The wild and tremendous battle of Chalon stayed the advance of the Huns into Gaul, September or October, 451. But it did not stay the raging torrent from pouring into Italy. There was no one to relieve Aquileia as Orléans had been relieved. Aquileia perished, and many of its sister cities of the north of Italy. This absolute destruction of homes and cities, and the searching and unsparing keenness of the sword of Attila, from which there was neither refuge nor mercy, drove the miserable remnant of the population of the mainland to seek their only escape in the islands and lagoons. The fugitives knew not what they were preparing. Out of this scattered remnant and the lagoons which sheltered them, Venice arose. Attila advanced toward Rome. The conqueror of Chalon, Aetius, hung on his march, but was unable to arrest him. But Attila's army was suffering from exhaustion and disease, and he yielded, at least for the time, to the supplications and offers of the Roman ambassadors, one of whom was the great Pope Leo. One of the conditions of peace, and the most shameful one, was that he should add a Roman princess of imperial rank to the crowd of his innumerable wives. But it was not to be. He retired to recruit himself in his wooden village in the open plains between the Thais and the Danube, and he was cut off by a sudden and mysterious death. His empire had no territorial basis and fell to pieces at his death. His sons were less able robber chiefs than their father, and they soon disappeared from history. German legends softened him into the King Etzel of the Nibelungenlied. The Latin traditions of Gaul gave him the name of the Scourge of God and supposed that he gloried in it. The remains of his horde retired eastwards, to reappear in the 6th century under the name of the Avars and perhaps the Bulgarians. But in the desolations of Attila, the empire had learned a new experience of its helplessness. Aetius and the victory of Chalon could save a province that in its chiefs and its interests was already more barbarian than Roman. But they could not avert the humiliation of ransoming Rome by the most ignominious conditions and what Attila had left for the time uncompleted, Geyseric finished. In the respite gained by Attila's departure, the court of Ravenna was desolated by domestic outrages and fierce quarrels. 
as Honorius, jealous of Stilicho, had put to death the conqueror of Alaric and Radagais, so Valentinian III, as incapable and even more vindictive than Honorius, was provoked by the pretensions of Aetius and murdered with his own hand the vanquisher of Attila in 454. The death of Stilicho had been followed by the sack of Rome by Alaric. The death of Aetius was followed not only by the assassination of the emperor and its train of usurpations and murders, but by a second sack of Rome, this time by the Vandals of Geyseric. A Roman count to avenge his wrongs had invited Geyseric to Africa. A Roman princess, Eudoxia, to avenge her wrongs, invited the pirate king of Carthage to assault Rome. In the very year, 455, in which the superstitious look for the completion of the faded twelve centuries of Roman power, a year after the murder of Aetius, the Vandal fleet from Carthage occupied the mouth of the Tiber. Geyseric succeeded where Hannibal had failed, and completed Alaric's terrible chastisement of the sacred city from which Attila himself two years before had shrunk. The intercession of Pope Leo, which had availed with Attila, did not stay Geyseric. It availed to prevent slaughter, but the pillage was more unsparing, and the havoc more irremediable, than that under Alaric half a century before. Geyseric sailed away with the spoils of Rome, with the Empress Eudoxia, and thousands of captives, with trophies of his victory over all that was most venerable in the ancient world, the gilded titles of the capital, the golden table and the golden candlestick brought by Titus from Jerusalem. Two great armadas were fitted out, one by the Emperor Majorian in the west between 458 and 460, the other by the Emperor Leo in the east in 468, to crush the Vandal power and avenge the sack of Rome. Both were surprised in harbor and destroyed by the fleets and fireships of Geyseric. The genius and more than the fortune of the old Carthaginian heroes seemed revived in the barbarian king. For nearly fifty years, from 429 to 477, he insulted and humbled Rome, and he lived to see the extinction of the Empire of the West. But this extinction of the Western Empire was ultimately determined by fatal changes in the state itself. There, too, finally and irrevocably, though at first under the disguise of ancient forms, the barbarian had forced his way and established himself first in the control and then in the possession of what political power still remained in Italy and Rome. The emperors had derived their titles either from hereditary claims or from their own bold enterprise, or from the choice of the senate or army, or from the nomination of an imperial colleague. But in the course of the last twenty years of the Western Empire, this power of choosing the emperor passed into the hands of the barbarian patricians in the West. A title of high dignity invented by Constantine, and now given to the chiefs of the foreign troops, mostly recruited from the tribes of Germany and the Danube, who were the strength of the armies of Rome and had become its real masters. In the last years of Theodosius between 392 and 394, Arbogast, the Frank chief of the military levies of the West, 
after murdering his master, the boy Emperor Valentinian II, had attempted to make an emperor of his own creature Eugenius. But Theodosius was still alive, and the attempt was signally punished. After the second siege of Rome, Alaric had imposed an emperor, Attalus, on the Roman Senate as the rival of Honorius. The step was intended to put pressure on Honorius, but Alaric used his nominee as if to make sport for himself, and the majesty of the greatest of earthly names suffered its last and fatal indignity when the emperor Attalus, at the caprice and convenience of a barbarian patron, was, to use Gibbon's words, promoted, degraded, insulted, restored again, degraded, and again insulted, and finally abandoned to his fate, the contemptuous revenge of his rival. The precedent set by Alaric was not lost. After the death of Valentinian III, the unworthy grandson of the great Theodosius, the first thought of the barbarian chiefs was not to destroy or usurp the imperial name, but to secure to themselves the nomination of the emperor. Avidus, chosen in Gaul under the influence of the West Gothic king of Toulouse, Theodoric II, was accepted for a time as the Western emperor by the Roman Senate and by the court of Constantinople. But another barbarian, Rikimer the Suave, ambitious, successful, and popular, had succeeded to the command of the federated foreign bands which formed the strength of the imperial army in Italy. Rikimer would not be a king, but he adopted as a settled policy the expedient or the insulting jest of Alaric. What Theodoric the Visigoth had given at a distance in Gaul, Rikimer the Suave, the master-general of the Italian armies of the empire, claimed to give on the spot at Rome. He deposed Avitus and probably murdered him. Under his direction, the Senate chose Majorian. Majorian was too able, too public-spirited, perhaps too independent for the barbarian patrician. Majorian, at a moment of ill fortune, was deposed and got rid of. Rikimir's next nominee, Severus, 457 to 461, seems to have been too feeble and incapable for his impatient master. At any rate, he is reported to have been made away with. Then, at a moment of extreme danger, in the hope of assistance from Leo the Eastern Emperor, against the attacks of Geyseric, Rikimer accepted an emperor chosen at Constantinople, the Greek Anthemius, whose daughter he married. But Anthemius was not content to be simply the tool and the screen of the patrician. Coolness and jealousies followed, Rikimer determined on a quarrel, and all attempts to reconcile them failed. Rikimer set up his fourth emperor, Olibrius, and at the head of a barbarian army attacked and slew Anthemius. For the third time, Rome was stormed and delivered over to a foreign soldiery in 472, in this case, nominally in her own service. Rikimer and Olibrius both died a few months afterwards, and the empire in the west was left without its nominal or real head. A refugee Burgundian king, Rikimer's nephew Gundobad, whom Rikimer had protected and who cared little for anything but his lost Burgundian inheritance, found himself successor to Rikimer as patrician in Italy. The patrician Gundobad, following Rikimer's example, 
conferred the title of Augustus on an officer of the imperial guard Glycerius. It is hard to imagine anything more grotesque in circumstances and more tragical in its substance than the chance of a Burgundian fugitive having, by the accident of the moment, the business thrust upon him of disposing of the majesty of the empire and of looking out in Rikimer's mixed host for a successor to the honors of the mighty line of men who had ruled from Augustus to Constantine. But the extravagance of ignominy was not exhausted. A rival emperor, Julius Nepos, compelled Glycerius to exchange the inheritance of the Caesars for the bishopric of Salona. Again, the bishop of Salona in due time found his fallen rival Nepos in his power and murdered him. In the next turn of fortune, a former secretary of Attila, Orestes, had become patrician and general of the barbarian troops. Like Rikimer, not caring or not venturing to become emperor himself, he proclaimed his son emperor in 475, to whom, by a strange chance, as if in mockery of his fortune, had been given the names of the first king and the first emperor of Rome, Romulus Augustus, soon turned in derision into the diminutive Augustulus. But Orestes failed to play the part of Rikimer. A younger and more daring barbarian adventurer, Odoacer the Herul or Rugian, bid higher for the allegiance of the army. Orestes was slain, and the young emperor was left to the mercy of Odoacer. In singular and significant contrast to the common usage when a pretender fell, Romulus Augustulus was spared. He was made to abdicate in legal form in 476, and the Roman Senate, at the dictation of Odoacer, officially signified to the Eastern Emperor Zeno their resolution that the separate Western Empire should cease, and their recognition of the one emperor at Constantinople, who should be supreme over West and East. Amid the ruin of the empire and the state, the dethroned emperor passed his days in such luxurious ease as the times allowed at the villa of Lucullus at Mycenaeum, and Odoacer, taking the Teutonic title of king, sent to the emperor at Constantinople the imperial crown and robe, which were to be worn no more at Rome or Ravenna for more than three hundred years. Thus, in the year 476, ended the Roman Empire, or rather the line of Roman emperors in the West. Thus it had become clear that the foundations of human life and society which had seemed under the first emperors eternal had given way. The Roman Empire was not the last word in the history of the world. But either the world was in danger of falling into chaos, or else new forms of life were yet to appear. New ideas of government and national existence were to struggle with the old for the mastery. The world was not falling into chaos. Europe, which seemed to have lost its guidance and its hope of civilization in losing the empire, was on the threshold of a history far grander than that of Rome, and was about to start in a career of civilization to which that of Rome was rude and unprogressive. In the great break-up of the empire in the West, some parts of its system lasted, others disappeared. What lasted was the idea of municipal government, the Christian church, the obstinate evil of slavery. 
what disappeared was the central power, the imperial and universal Roman citizenship, the exclusive rule of the Roman law, the old Roman paganism, the Roman administration, the Roman schools of literature. Part of these revived. The idea of central power under Charles the Great and Otto, his great successor, the appreciation of law, though not exclusively Roman law, the schools of learning. And under these conditions, the new nations, some of mixed races, as in France, Spain, and Italy, others simple and homogeneous, as in Germany, England, and the Scandinavian peninsula, began their apprenticeship of civilization. But the time of preparation was long. The world had long to wait for the ripening of the seed which was so widely sown, and which was in due season to bear such rich fruit. In the first five centuries after Western Europe had passed from Roman to barbarian rule, two great stages are perceptible in the course of events. In the first stage, we see the confusion and disturbance attending on the new settlement, which everywhere took the shape of invasion. But the materials were being gathered and made ready to form the new society which was to arise. In the second stage, we see the attempts to organize these materials, to give distinctness to the different forms of national life, to introduce order, law, and fixed constitutional habits in the new nations, attempts which culminated in the revived empire of Charles the Great. To trace the course of European history through these two stages is the object of the following sketch. End of section two.